Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Sports Travel Podcast, where we interview leaders from throughout the sports event industry. This is Matt Traub, Managing Editor of Sports Travel, and our guests today are USA Rugby Chief Executive Officer Ross Young and USA Rugby World Cup Bid Committee Chair Jim Brown. But before we begin, first a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Sports Travel Podcast is being sponsored by the Teams Conference and Expo, the world's largest gathering of sports event organizers and the destinations and suppliers that serve the sports event industry. Teams 22 will be held in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma from October 24th through the 27th, 2022. This year's conference will again feature the co-location of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Sports Link Program and NGB Best Practices Seminar, as well as the annual symposium of the National Congress of State Games. For more details on everything planned at Teams this year, please visit teamsconference.com. And now, on to the conversation. The United States will host the Rugby World Cup in 2031 and Women's Rugby World Cup in 2033, planting a flag in the ground for the sport stateside by World Rugby, the international federation in charge of the event. Thursday's announcement also completes a remarkable comeback for USA Rugby, which filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in March 2020 before it emerged from bankruptcy last year. We talk with Ross Young and Jim Brown about the bid process, the emotions of World Rugby's official announcement, deciding on 2031 and 2033 for the tournaments it wanted to host, what this will mean for the sport of rugby throughout the United States, what the organization has learned from when it hosted the 2018 Rugby Sevens World Championship in San Francisco, and much more. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Ross Young and Jim Brown, thank you for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Ross, as the leader of an organization that not too long ago had come out of bankruptcy proceedings, with the bid being awarded, what are your emotions knowing that the Rugby World Cup and Women's Rugby World Cup will be coming to the United States and to USA Rugby? It's been a roller coaster, so a mix of emotions is probably the best way to describe it. Um, it it's a huge milestone, and it, as everyone knows, the union you know was struggling pre-COVID and in how it operated in general within the environment. So, you know, we'd started a process before then about building out in a proper foundational strategic plan and building an operation and business case around how that was going to work. And the World Cup was always a potential to be a catalyst for that or an anchor for, for that for those plans. So we'd started thinking strategically about it obviously beforehand. And it was certainly important going as we were going through the bankruptcy process to ensure that we kept the momentum going on it. Now we're at this stage where we really can move forward with certainty around around building that plan. You know, the emotions are there, not just around the fact that this event will be happening. It's the opportunity of building a sustainable environment for USA Rugby on the, on, on the back of that awarding. So... Uh, yeah, really excited. And, you know, there's a huge amount of work that's been done primarily by Jim and, and the team. Um, you know, on the other hand, a lot of the a lot of the hard yards start now. Jim, you've been an expert in the bidding process throughout the soccer world, both on the side of FIFA and also with shepherding the bid through the 2026 20, FIFA World Cup that will be coming to North America. You have connections throughout your life to the sport of rugby, but still when Ross came to you with this idea. Could you see this moment happening with such relative quickness? Yeah, that, that's a, a good question. I think it's similar to what Ross said. I think there were days where 
yes, I, I have to say I felt quite bullish. And I, I think I, I'm quoted as saying we're quite bullish about the opportunity of not only hosting, but doing a really good job for for the sport of rugby, for the United States, for you know the communities of, of rugby. But there, there were definitely in line with, with Ross's comment. You know, there were days where I was like, uh-oh, I, this is feeling like it's a long shot and, and I just can't believe it's you know, possibly going to happen. Certainly the momentum of the last four or five months, I, I think, have been consistent in the right direction and uh, fairly positive. And, and uh, I think we're, we're really, again, to use the word, we're quite bullish about the opportunities that this will lend rugby and the United States in general, I think to adjust the sports landscape a little bit in the United States would be, would be a, a good way of putting it. And, and ultimately I think uh, to grow a sport that we all believe that would be a great addition to what already is a very competitive and successful sports landscape in the United States. So for either of you guys, and you can both give me your thoughts on this, what do you believe this will do for the sport of rugby in the United States over the next eight years leading up to the Rugby World Cup in 31 before the Women's World Cup in 33? And does having the event awarded so far in advance help in growing the sport further so that when it comes here, you're able to have a gigantic rugby festival that the World Cup and what USA Rugby hopes the World Cup deserves? It's huge, Matt. And I'll I'll touch on a, a bit on the I suppose the community in the general side and, and maybe Jim can jump in on, you know, the consumer customer, if you like general sports fan aspects that, you know, that will happen organically. I think the undoubtedly having a runway and building a plan. And I alluded to it a little bit. My first question is, as we've gone through this process with world rugby, which changed from the start to the end. So it was a very traditional bidding process when we embarked on it then became a bit more of a managed process. And then we've ended up in this exclusive targeted dialogue phase for the last few months. And what that's given us a great opportunity to do with World Rugby is talk about how we can partner with them and build out opportunities and build the growth plan. The word legacy is thrown around and has been thrown around for years around one of the big benefits of hosting a major sports event. Legacy is great, but legacy by the you know, definition of the word is what comes after. What we've talked about is building out a legacy plan, but starting from the awarding. So for me, it's it's an opportunity to work with World Rugby to build out a plan with the right stakeholders, with the people like, like MLR, with, you know, our various constituents across the senior club game, the college game, the youth game, having some funding and generating some funding, which you know, we're hoping to pull forward as part of this process. Again, been discussions with World Rugby to to give us the capital to deliver those sort of plans. And you know, as I said earlier, one of the issues about with USA Rugby in the past is trying to do too much to too many across such a huge geography without enough resource or cash. So, you know, you have to have funding in place. And you know, what's been really refreshing is the open nature of the discussions with World Rugby, and then want to partner with us to unlock you know, the true potential and, and make it work. So from from a grassroots perspective and building on what we have with regard to the playing base, the coaching base, the referee base, it is a massive opportunity. And uh, as the game and the profile increases, then you know, I'll let Jim touch on, you know, the benefits of, of understanding where rugby sits within the, the major event sporting environment and 
almost how we can market that and ensure that we increase the spectator base as well that will help populate the event. Jim, what do you think this can do for rug- the sport of rugby commercially in the United States, being that you're able to have eight years to grow the sport and also to line do things such as work to line up commercial sponsors, work up to work to line up funding that that will make this event a gigantic success, and as Ross said, start to be able to build leave a legacy throughout the country. Well, I, as part of our bid, I think there's there's really two two essential streams, or well, three essential streams. There's the the one we don't really need to talk too much about, which is delivering the actual event itself. And I think there's some confidence there that certainly I, I've done a few events here in the United States or other bigger global global events that I think we're well positioned there. We have great partners in the stadiums and the cities who want to be a part of it. Obviously, as Ross said earlier, you know, it's still a lot of hard work to get there, but I think there's certainly a, a template there that we can tap into and and really, I think, um, help rugby grow in that area. But there, there really are two two real developmental or growth initiatives. One is is the sport itself, which Ross and, and the team are very focused on, and rightly so. Um, you know, making sure that we increase the numbers of participants, we increase the number of fans, we increase you know the the quality of the top teams, etc. Um, you know that that is, I think, a, an area for for sure which Ross um, and and the you know rugby community are, are leading. But then the 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 marketing side is is the other piece. And, and to answer your question directly, I think it means everything. Um, the fact that something really, honestly, legitimate and, and real um, like a rugby World Cup is coming to to the United States. You know that that leverage I, I think can be applied to anything rugby related and I think it will be vital to to be used as a as a catalyst for for those and and something as simple as tickets you know we we have to sell you know, we have available 3.1 million tickets for the 31 world cup and the number of people and Ross can say this better than I can I'm sure but the reality is that the number of skeptical reactions we had when we we proposed this as our as our bid it was significant and um, certainly not not unexpected, but still a shock when you hear that uh, people doubt that that's the right way to go. And we're, we're built to be able to adjust accordingly. But, you know, the reality is, is and having talked to Alan Rothenberg, who, who led the 94 men's or soccer World Cup in 94, he said everywhere he turned and said they were going to go to big stadiums, you know, he did not get much positivity coming out of anybody, experts or, or, or soccer fans, and the reaction of people who expected they'd just get the tickets for free if there were so many tickets available. Uh, so he can tell a lot of stories there, and it's very similar. But the fact that the Rugby World Cup itself is coming, uh, come both of them, um, or we hope will be coming, I, I think means everything. I mean, uh, it's a boost to the existing MLR group. It's a boost to any vendor in and around rugby journalists. Um, I'm pretty sure that people who have been involved, and, and I've been involved this for, for almost two years now, the number of journalistic interest in, in all of this is is a good barometer as well in terms of what, what this means. And uh, I think uh, it's really impressive, the, the reaction and the interest being expressed, which I think will, will translate to a commercial uh, increase for sure. This is the Rugby World Cup, World Rugby does not mess around with the bidding process and making, and they are going to be very detailed and make sure that every host has everything lined up. Throughout the bidding process, what has your relationship with World Rugby been like? 
And if there is a hardest part of something that's so detailed, what would the hardest part of the bidding process have been? I, I think it's a good question, and, and Ross certainly is more of an expert on, on this. But I have to say, having dealt with uh, other event owners, uh, namely the ones I've worked for <laughs> uh, in the IOC and uh, and FIFA, I, I think the relationship with World Rugby, you know, primarily led with Ross as our primary interface, is, is probably the the cornerstone of of the success of of, of everything for for us and for, for them, the partnership feeling we had from day one, the open communication we've had from day one, and really the sincere honesty in terms of them saying they really want this to happen. I wouldn't say from day one, but when they could finally say it, it's been very open. And, and I think our, our open and honesty was quite a, quite a response to theirs. You know, if they need anything, we were able to provide it to them unfiltered and, and straightforward. And, and I think that's going to allow us to to really hit the ground running. You know, we viewed our bid certainly at a certain point. We viewed our bid not necessarily as a bid, but really the beginning of the planning. And and I think so a lot of good work has already happened in, in preparation for it. And and I think the the idea is to just build from it along with World Rugby um, for, from from hopefully May 12th onwards. Yeah, and I think just to to follow up on that, Jim Jim's right. It's been it's never easy, but we set out when we started this whole process um, about doing our due diligence and ensuring that first up we were uh, that we were very clear on the operational and technical capability of hosting, which with Jim and his team's experience was, 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 was certainly the easier part. I think one of the difficulties when we started the process was going to be meeting some of the, the legal and financial requirements that, tend to come from central government funding, which just constitutionally you can't do in the US. And the relationship we have and the flexibility that World Rugby showed really has, you know, has manifested itself well through the process that you say we, we ended up in this targeted dialogue phase and we're in a situation now where it's much more of a partnership approach than, you know, than the old fashioned, you have won the bid, there you go, and not you've got to cope with all the risks that's associated with it. It's, you know, we're going to remain and that relationship is just going to get stronger as we, you know, as this really is a partnership process with world rugby as, uh, you know, as we, as we build out towards 31 and 33. One of the final pieces for the bid process was having a letter from president Joe Biden. Federal government guarantees can be a crucial part of the process when bidding for major world events how has the process been of working with governmental leaders and making sure you're able to have a you know a personal letter from President Joe Biden being sent to World Rugby saying that uh, you know his fondness for the sport and the desire for him as the leader of this country to have the Rugby World Cup coming to the United States? Yeah, I, I think that it's been very positive from from day one. I, I think there's obviously a, a similar process was done for the 2026 FIFA World Cup process and. And obviously that had positivity as well and, and support from the federal government. But in this case, we, we've we had a very good relationship and, and uh, really quite an expedited process as well compared to what we've had or the U.S. has had in past bid, bid efforts. So generally smooth and, and uh, generally positive. I think there, the, the federal government still has some deliveries in terms of some of the 
the guarantees that they have to provide, but we're getting very regular updates that secretaries of the appropriate departments are, are calling into our team for you know, clarity and understanding the, the process. So they're engaged and we hope those um, are delivered to us within the next month or two, but, but very generally very, very good. It goes back to, I think, one of the previous answers, Matt, as well, about the by the way the constitution is in the US and the timescale that, that we're talking about for 31 and 33 you know, it'd have been very difficult to have ticked all the boxes completely with those 100% guarantees because of change of cycle. So setting up the, the rugby caucus within within Congress and you know having the real sort of bipartisan cross-party support for that was a great first step. And then, you know, so having that endorsement, if you like, as, as you said, for, from the president, I think gives the level of comfort to the world rugby, you know, that we're, as we continue through the the, the planning and setup process of this that we will meet all the requirements laid out in the in the documentation. I know when this process began, there was exploration into hosting either 2027 as well as 2031 for the men's rugby world cup. And yours thought about for the women's rugby world cup bidding for 2029. How did you settle on for the men 2031, the women 2033? And while we're sitting here talking about an eight-year lead-up for the Rugby World Cup, having an additional two years on top of that for the women's sport in this country could be a gigantic change, game changer, I would imagine. One hundred percent, Matt. And it, it, the outcome we've got to is because we've had this this great managed process of discussions and tying in strategically um, what World Rugby are doing with the women's game in general, as you talked about, bringing more focus. It's the the fastest growing rugby event in the world is the is the Women's Rugby World Cup. As they built out this strategy over this next 11 years or so, going through with Australia, you know, and with us is, is getting into that cadence of maximizing the opportunity. As we went through the what's going to be the best time scale, where are we going? We want a bigger runway as possible to be competitive for the men. The women already are right up there in the in the top echelons of the of the game, 33, 31 made, made more sense, especially having lost a couple of years of playing due to COVID. Um, strategically building in and combining those events, which we have done with Australia and with us, gives an opportunity to keep on exponentially raising, if you like, the profile and the quality and combining the funding of both events and you know, the opportunities for sponsors, partners by linking the events in the same territory, I think is a smart move. And, it, you know, not just for the US, which is a thriving women's sport marketplace anyway, but for World Rugby really to make that statement around uh, around the women's game. Yeah, it's, it is a huge opportunity that, that, that we're really excited about. The Rugby Sevens World Championship was hosted in San Francisco a few years ago. And I know Ross and Jim, you guys weren't involved with that to nearly the to any degree, let alone nearly the degree that you all have been in this bid process. What lessons from people who have were there and have told you about the experience do you think USA Rugby can learn that can be applicable to the future Rugby World Cups down the line that will be coming to the United States? I actually did get involved. I got brought in relatively late in the in the game, if you like, for 2018 to oversee mainly the rugby and sporting operations. Um, and actually, Rosie Spaulding, who was the tournament director for that event, has been 
uh, project lead for the for the 33 project and the women's side. So it's been great to be able to learn from those. And I think, you know, the single biggest thing for us was ensuring that you'd done all your due diligence before committing to hosting the event. And that, that wasn't done for 2018. It was a huge operational success. And with over 100,000 people across the weekend, the biggest and most successful Sevens World Cup today. And But, you know, there were mistakes made in the long-term planning. and and that's you know that's something that we've done from the start here when when we asked Jim to do a feasibility study before we even put our hand up to start doing the bid was to to go back and learn learn some of those lessons um you know and they have been implemented and it, it is it's obviously a, a completely different a completely different event as being multi-city multi-weekend event instead of just a, a week-long event that uh that it was in San Francisco, but there are synergies and uh, from World Rugby's perspective as well, part of the issues around that event was was a separation, if you like, of priorities between the governing body and certain elements that they still hold and control. And what, you know, we as a host had to commit to and that were sometimes at odds with, with those objectives of the host. So, that partnership approach that we've talked about a couple of times is going to ensure that that doesn't happen for this either. I, it, it, for, for us, at least on the, on the bid team side, I think it was just another hurdle to cross a little bit because there was certainly a, a, a re, I wouldn't say resistance, but an awareness that are, were we getting into something similar to what happened in, in San Francisco? And I think as, as Ross said, it's really very different. It's like apples and oranges in terms of what's required uh, of of a bidding union and and certainly the 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 scale of the event is also uh, I think uh, so different that uh, it really wasn't truly uh, a, an example of or, or relevant in terms of what we've had to do just a different world really and and uh, but again there was some um, I think resistance due to that but but again like everything else I think eventually people understand and and we were able to cross that hurdle as part of your one of your recent announcements ahead of the world rugby announcement you had a list of 24 potential cities that could be host candidates for 2031 or 2033 perhaps even both i know you don't have to announce hosts immediately given the long timeline that you are able to do uh to organize this event but do you have any idea of what an initial timeline for how cities will compete in the bidding process and could the list of cities potentially grow over time? Yeah, our, our hope is to um, finalize and, and along with World Rugby uh, to, to be able to have selected the host cities around the 27, usually before the 27 World Cup in Australia. So four, between four and five years out, I, I think that's a standard and allows enough time to really focus on those you know, 10, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever the number of cities in the end will be selected uh, to get ready to, to host in, in 31. The Most of the cities, it's actually 25 now, Matt. Uh, we, we had New Orleans signed um, since, uh, since we sent out the press release, but most of the cities are interested in both 31 and 33. There's a couple that are only interested in 33, and there's a few that are really primarily focused on 31. 
we, we could add more in the future, uh, for sure, depending on who and reasons. Um, but you know, right now we're very happy with our the the number we have, and, and we will pare down the, those numbers for the next four or five years to build towards the final selection. Yeah, and I think just coming back to what you said earlier, Matt, about growth and opportunities during this ten-year pathway, I think the having the number of cities that we have, um, you know, we certainly want to maximize opportunities of hosting bigger games, more test matches, more regular games in the US from the men's and women's perspective. So, you know, having access to those cities in this environment now gives us an opportunity to you know, run test events and see how effective different marketing initiatives, different sports commissions, et cetera, and you know, working with NFL teams, which was successful for the uh, in Washington with the with the now Washington Commanders and, and the uh, in FedEx Field in D.C., for December was it was a good example of that could work, um, and we'll certainly use to maximise those relationships over the build up. And I think, as Jim alluded to, in the US, as we know, there's stadia, stadia construction, and business seems to be, you know, stadiums get upgraded or new stadiums get built pretty regularly. So we certainly don't want to lock this in as an only list. If there's, you know, if there are developments confirmed. A new stadia come into being, then yeah, we want to we want to have them as part of that process. But saying that, we're we're so happy with the list that we've got. Um, you know, the geographical spread and the opportunities that those great venues in a bunch of great cities around this country. The uh, you know their keenness and willingness to get involved in this project. Well, I'm sure there's going to be plenty of rugby that we can all talk about over the next eight to 10 years. Uh, congratulations, Ross and Jim. And thank you again for joining us today on the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's been an absolute pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. This has been another edition of the Sports Travel Podcast. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on all your favorite platforms, including iTunes, Google Play and Spotify. Past episodes are also available at sportstravelmagazine.com, which features breaking news and in-depth features on stories related to the sports event industry. Be sure to visit us daily at sportstravelmagazine.com, at sportstravel on Twitter and Instagram, and at sportstravelmagazine on Facebook and LinkedIn. Until then, this is Matt Trout for Sports Travel, and thanks for listening.